A lot of people that are not familiar with our immigration system think that we choose to be dreamers, that we're choosing to be undocumented, that we can easily apply for citizenship and just get it. But that's definitely not the case. That's what we're striving for. I don't have the same opportunities as everyone else, so I have to work a little harder to do everything that I want to do. It's true that sometimes you dream about America, but when you come, the right is different. It's not America of Hollywood that you see in the films. And when someone tells me minority, I say I am not a minority. I refuse to be minoritized. Those are the voices of four immigrants to Western New England. Today on In Contrast, we'll put a voice to what it means to be an immigrant and a refugee. That's coming up right after the news. Welcome to In Contrast. I'm Ilan Stavans. Today we'll hear stories from four immigrants to Western New England. All were part of New England Public Radio series Words in Transit, a project that was a collaboration with the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College. We'll also talk with someone from the Hartford Public Library who is on the front lines of helping recent immigrants and refugees. We'll begin with a story from Hind Mary, who left her native Palestine in 1986. Even in an educated setting like this one, I have been asked, how come my husband allows me to work? Or people assumed that by the virtue of being Muslims, he must be physically abusive to me. Every single time I open my mouth, someone hears an accent, immediately, where are you from? Sometimes they try to ask it in a, like, oh, do I hear an accent? And that's a code to me that you don't belong here. Where do you belong? I am often reminded that you're an outsider and you're the other. Being Palestinian means I don't belong to any of the most non-ethnic groups in this country. When they talk about diversity, diversity means people of African-American descent, Asian-American, Native American, and Latina, Latino. Nobody would consider Arab American or Palestinian as part of the diversity. I'm often reminded I'm not a person of color enough. According to the State Department, they force me to check the box white, but I'm not, and I'm not treated as white. That was the voice of Hind Mary. She came from Palestine to UMass on a Fulbright scholarship in 1986 expecting to return after completing her master's and doctorate. In 1992, after a traumatic visit home to the West Bank, she and her husband concluded that they could not raise a family in their beloved native country. She currently works at the Center for Women and Community at UMass, directing the Women of Color Leadership Network. Welcome to the show. Thank you. In that year, 1992, you and your husband made that dramatic decision mm -hmm. of raising your kids in the United States. Were you aware, were you conscious that it was going to part your life in two very clear chapters, the before and after? I think so. That decision wasn't taken lightly. I do remember feeling that maybe it's the beginning of a loss. For instance, leaving the country in '92. I remember clearly that I badly wanted to bring with me some pictures and memories and souvenirs. And 
Unfortunately, they were preparing for Oslo talks. So crossing the border was incredibly difficult. People were spending two nights at the border waiting. You're talking about the dialogue between the Israelis the and the Israelis Palestinians, and Palestinians that led to the Oslo Accord. Yes. So it was very hard to carry your luggage and leave. And, you know, we were prepared for the worst. We, we lucked out that we didn't have to spend the night at the border or we did only the night. But I was told you need to carry only the basics. We even left some clothes behind because we just wanted to carry the lightest. All these years later, how do those two chapters of your life communicate with one another on a daily basis, the before and after? That's a good question. I'm not sure how, but there are things like I don't feel um, Americanized, even though I definitely have adapted to living here and adopted many American ways. In 92, I was surprised when people said, you've changed. I think I was still in denial that anything in me has changed. But after 30 years, clearly I know and I admit and I recognize certain things that have changed. But I think the basic values, the basic culture is still there. It's a mixture between how do they communicate? Like, I still listen to Arabic music. I do recognize some American music through my kids who play it, but I wouldn't know which artist is singing it. In terms of food, we cook totally internationally. I love to cook, and I cook from around the world not necessarily only Arabic food, because I think it's so time-consuming and I love to experiment. In the excerpt that we heard, you reflected on being part of a small minority within the minorities that make the mosaic on the, of the United States that is not mm -hmm. African-American or Latino or Asian-American. Does this become a big challenge in not only not feeling part of the mainstream, mm -hmm. but also not feeling part of those minorities, not having a place, maybe always being othered? Can I start with something by addressing the use of word minority? Please. Because I have to say, honestly, I cringe when it's used. Mm -hmm. And it's used by people of color sometimes. I feel... As one of my great mentors says, we are the global majority. <laughs> and I usually use the underrepresented. Mm -hmm. And when someone tells me minority, I say I am not a minority. I refuse to be minoritized. So just to start with that, sure. like on record, it's not a minority. But yeah, definitely within, within the American diversity, people don't know what to do with me. We don't have like a governmental, what we call protected status within the government. So we are not a known underrepresented group for people. Granted that many Arabs who started arriving in the 1870s and 80s maybe wanted to assimilate and wanted to be considered American due to the national feeling of sending all people from other countries like go home to your countries in the early 1900s. I think it's both where Arabs wanted to assimilate on the most part and where U.S. mainstream culture doesn't know what to do with us. Mm -hmm. So even here, 
whether people are white or people of color, they don't often know that we are people of color. And especially people who know me and haven't seen other Arabs, by looking at me, I can pass. So people don't know what to make of me until I speak and they hear the accent and they realize I'm not American. One time I was introduced to a religious leader in town who looked at me and someone said Hind is the new director for Women of Color Leadership Network. And the woman looked at me and she said, but you don't look like a woman of color to me. And I get that often from white people and sometimes from other people of color. But I, I also have heard the wonderful comments from other people of color saying, you broadened my understanding of who is considered a person of color. And I didn't know much about people like you. I'd like you to reflect on how the United States has changed since 9-11. The xenophobia, the anti-Arab feeling has been protagonist in all these years. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if, from your perspective, there has been some maturity, some transformation in the way we approach and understand Arabs in general and Mm -hmm. Arabs within the United States. It's extremely complex. Mm -hmm. I remember immediately after September 11th, George W. Bush standing and saying, a number of people have done that. We're not against Muslims. We're not against Arabs. Yet overnight, 2,000 Arab Muslim men from New Jersey were rounded up and ended up in Guantanamo. So both were going on. At the same time, in the media, Very few voices were saying, as horrifying as the incident was, let's try to understand what caused it and why. But that was the tiny minority voice that wasn't often heard. You would hear either attacks from different news outlets or more stereotyping. At the same time, there were more programs that attempted to talk more about Arabs and Muslims in a more positive way or show the breadth of the cultures and the diversity within these worlds. So it is complex, I believe. Mm. And over the years, of course, with the first Iraq war and people not wanting the U.S. to get engaged in another war and then the continuation of whether protests and covering the, the news on that and everything that has led to it from the war... I think there is much more coverage in the media now, so people know a little bit more. When you hear the word United States after all these years, what comes to mind? Not sure. (laughs) Home? Partly, yes. Partly home. I think about how the United States is seen by other people in other countries. Does the dream of going home, meaning to... Palestine Mm -hmm. still exists in you? Going home, moving back completely. There is a big part of me that does want that. But realistically, I don't think it's so easy after living away for years and years and after all what's going on politically in the area there. I'm not sure if I would be able to readjust back completely as if I never left. The dream is about visiting as often as possible and staying connected with my people there. 
I want to hear about what the Women of Color Leadership Network does. We are a place for women of color, a place of advocacy, mentorship, programming, a place we would like women to call home away from home. UMass is a predominantly white institution. The number of women of color is not that high. And often women come to me and say they sit in a classroom and they happen to be the only the only woman of color in the classroom or the only one with that specific identity. Sometimes their classmates or professors or TAs would tokenize them without even meaning it, but something comes up about a certain topic and without thinking they turn to that person and they ask them what do they think and they feel they need to represent their whole people. Of course, they don't like that because white students are not asked to represent all white people. That's a place that we would like to have open for women. We do a lot of programming and awareness raising. We work independently as part of the Center for Women and Community or in collaboration with other departments and programs on campus. We do programs sometimes with the Stonewall Center, with student legal services, with many others. And we have a variety of programs from panel discussions, like we did one on women of color and media misrepresentations. We often have at least once a semester a spoken word event. We do have film discussions sometimes. Our major program is called Body Politics, which is a production by and about women of color. They have workshops for the most of the year. They talk about topics and issues that are important to them, from body image to relationships to being other to racism to anything that they choose to talk about. They talk about it from a social justice perspective, and they write. And their writing used to be put in a skit in the past, the first 10 years. They performed it live on campus. For the last two years, we've been creating digital stories. So that's one signature program. There's another program, we call it Dom Dialogues, when we train our undergraduate students on facilitation and they do peer-to-peer educational programs in residence halls and other places on campus. So that's kind of in a nutshell. But we also have what we call social hour, which people come for two hours People just come to meet our staff, meet each other, connect, network, and support each other. Wonderful having you on the show. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. To hear longer versions of Hint's story, visit nepr.net. You're listening to In Contrast on New England Public Radio. We left because of the gangs in El Salvador. Also because my mom is a single mother. She couldn't raise three kids on her own. So she decided to come here. The day we left, the whole family got together. My grandmother was there. My aunt was there. My cousins, close family members were there. And my mom just decided to bring my older brother and I and leave my little brother behind because at the time he was four years old. So he was too young for um, to travel. I was 10, my brother was 11. My mom couldn't tell my little brother that we were coming here. She told him that he was going to go on vacation with my grandmother for a few days, for a few weeks. And I didn't see him for nine years after that. 
we finally made it to the border of southern Texas border. They took us to a river, to the river that we had to cross. And they told us, oh, you made it to the United States. Now just go and maybe they'll catch you, but you're in the, you'll, you will be in, in the mainland so that they can't deport you because you're a kid or something like that. That's what they said. And we're like, we don't even know how to speak English. We crossed the river, we changed our clothes and started walking. This truck stopped us and was like, you guys need to stop. And that was the immigration officers that had caught us. Those are the voices of our next guests. Angelica Morino Monge was 10 years old when she, her mother, and her older brother fled El Salvador. Monge lived as an undocumented citizen until recently when the DACA Act, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, was passed, authorizing her to work and receiving deferred action status. She is currently a student at Holyoke Community College and was one of the organizers of the recent Out of the Shadows March. Brian Torres is also originally from El Salvador. He was a toddler when his mother left to find work in this country. Raised by his grandmother, Brian finally reunited with his mother and siblings after a harrowing experience sneaking into the U.S. with strangers at the age of 12. A sophomore at Amherst College, he is also one of the organizers of the recent Out of the Shadows March. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. I'd like to first hear what it means to you to be a dreamer. To be a dreamer for me, it means to dream of being equal. I don't have the same opportunities as everyone else, so I have to work a little harder to do everything that I want to do, to go to school, especially because my mom left, so I do everything by myself, so I take care of myself and I go to school. And the DACA helped a lot, but like I said, I don't think it's enough. And I dream of going to law school. I dream of, you know, being equal as everyone else. And that, for me, that's what a dreamer is. For me, being a dreamer means to live the struggle, to fight for legality or, like, for documents. It's also really important to the right to obtain an education, to finally become an American citizen, because... A lot of people that are not familiar with our immigration system think that we choose to be dreamers, that we're choosing to be undocumented, that we can easily apply for citizenship and just get it. But that's definitely not the case. That's what we're striving for. That's why we're creating awareness. Um, and that's why we did the march. When, Brian, did you become aware of your status, of the fact that you were a dreamer? At what point did you become conscious of the status that you have? When I got into the border and I got caught up by immigration, that's when I realized that I wasn't like welcome into the country, like I wasn't doing something legally. But then after that, when I started going to school, when I was in high school and I, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to go to college because on, of my undocumented status, I didn't qualify for any financial aid. So that's when I realized that I was a dreamer and that I could only dream of an education. I didn't see that possibility becoming a reality. That's when I started working really hard to achieve 
my dream of, of obtaining an education. What is that moment in which you realize that your undocumented status would, would define you? So I knew I was undocumented since I came here. While I was in high school, it didn't really affect me because I only went to school. The moment that affected me the most was when my mom left and my brother and I had to find an apartment and we didn't know how to do it because we weren't legal. So I didn't have any documents. I didn't have any credit. I didn't have anything to prove that I was here. So that was the moment when it hit me, when I knew that it was going to be hard when I knew that I was going to have to stop going to college. When I started going to college, I knew I was undocumented and I knew that I had to pay out of state and that's why I was working hard. But then working hard to go to college and also working to pay my own education was hard. So that's when I realized that I couldn't do everything, everything that everyone else could do. It's hard because I didn't have anything, still don't. <laughs> do you, as a dreamer, feel empathetic and in, in a sense of community with other dreamers? Do, do dreamers communicate among each other in a way that you feel it's different from the rest of society? I do. I met Brian in middle school. And um, when I met them, I could relate a lot to them because I knew they were going through the same struggles that I was going through. They were learning English. They were new to this country and we were from El Salvador, so we became really close. Of the many, many dreamers that I know I have become acquainted with, just very few have decided to become activists. How do you go from being in the shadows in society, it being a suspect because you don't have the documents, to feeling the internal energy that you can go out and speak in public and represent those like you? So I'm taking an immigration and political science class right now, and that class just, it got me angry. I knew how hard it was, but I, I didn't realize the history or I didn't know the history. So when I started learning the history, I knew I wanted to do something, and I had spoken to Brian before, and I've told him that I wanted to make a change to try to do something. And that's when I became president of the Latino Association Club at HEC, and that's when I started saying that I wanted to do that. My professors backed me up, everyone, and we started working on it. And I'm really passionate about it because I feel like I have a duty to be an example to other people, especially with how hard we have worked. And I know that before, I didn't have anyone to look up to. When I got to Amherst College, I saw that no one was really speaking about their immigration status, even though I knew there were a lot of, uh, there was a good amount of dreamers. So I felt like I had to do something because we live in a very liberal, progressive town. And the fact that nobody's really speaking about immigrant rights I felt like I had to do something. I felt like we had to come out of the shadows. In my nine years living in this country, I'd never seen any march happen at Amherst or Northampton. And that's the march that both of you helped organize out of the shadows. Yes, march. correct. Now, I'd like to ask you, because if many people have the impression that dreamers are by definition inclined through a more liberal approach to politics and have a sense that the borders should be open. Do you think borders need to have police, need to have authority figures, or do you believe that we should live in a world without borders? I think that there is a lot, like the U.S. should be 
a lot more supportive with other Latin American countries so that people wouldn't have to risk their lives and come here with the hope of crossing the border without any documents. I know that a lot of the consequences with all the problems, the economic, the violence problems in El Salvador are consequences of civil wars that the United States very much su supported. They should definitely be more supportive also with the long-term consequences. Do you imagine for yourself at some point when you become a full adult being involved in politics? Not so much. I like to be an activist. I like to create awareness, but I don't see myself as a politician because, I don't know, it's not something that attracts me so much. I would see myself more as like a, becoming a professor or teaching or like a lawyer and, and helping people, but I don't think pol politics are my thing. So I do believe that there should be open borders. I don't think we should have boundaries between people because when we have boundaries between people, it creates kind of like a system of oppression. That's what we're seeing right now with immigration. There's a system of oppression. Us immigrants are pretty much the new slaves. Um, we work in extremely poor condition jobs that no one should work in. Just feel like we shouldn't be there anymore. We should be more... Progressive and, and do more you imagine open. for yourself a role in politics in the future? I am very open to opportunities. Right now, I'm focusing on being an immigration lawyer, but I would want to be like a liberal politician, maybe, so that our view can change because our view is not changing right now. In the few minutes that we have left, ask you to imagine yourself as parents in the future and trying to convey to your children the ordeal that you went through. How would you describe to the next generation those experiences that were so harrowing, so shaking, and that defined you so thoroughly? For me, it's, it's empowering. So I would want to tell them, you know, to work hard, to accomplish everything they want, and to have an open mind, to hear both sides of the story before, you know, making up your mind. And like my mom made me work, made me work and it's made me um, independent. So uh, it's made me really independent. And, you know, at 20, I've accomplished many things. And I feel like I wouldn't have been able to do that if the stuff that happened to me. So I feel like because of everything that happened to me, I've grown more and I'm more independent. It has shaped you. It has shaped me as a person. You, Brian? I would definitely let them know the whole story so that they are aware of all the different layers of oppression that do exist in this country. And also that they would know of how privileged they are to be born here. And I would want that so that they are more aware and like they even share it with their friends. And because I wouldn't want the second generation to just not acknowledge the past, the struggle, like, and to judge other people that do come here and as undocumented. I wouldn't want my children to, to be those people that judge. I would want them to be the support and, like, advocate. For well, Angelica and Brian, it's been an enormous pleasure to have you in the show. Thanks for coming. Thank, Thank you, you so much for Thank having so us. Much. To hear longer versions of both Angelica and Brian's story, visit nepr.net. We'll be back after this break. I'm Ilan Stavans. This is In Contrast on New England Public Radio. Because of political problems that happened in my country after an election, there was a civil war in my country. And I have to hide for two months. When I came out, I was feeling weak. 
tired and everything. And when I was able to go to see a doctor, they found out that I was having a kidney failure. I couldn't stay in my country because uh, there was uh, people were in house arrests, people were targets, so I couldn't stay. My workshop was burned. I couldn't stay. My salary was frozen. So I needed to go out of the country to continue doing my dialysis. So I have to go to the next country, who is Ghana, and it's my country where I was born. And there I have the opportunity in the past of working with the French embassy as a diplomat. So I have some connection people. So I went back to Ghana to stay there. And I spent two years in Ghana. Georges Anan Kingsley taught fine arts at the university level and owned a successful interior design business in Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. He was also managing the presidential campaign of an anti-corruption candidate when in 2010 that candidate's opponent seized power. George's life suddenly in danger, he went into hiding. For two years, the Ghanaian government sheltered him, funding costly treatment for his grave kidney condition, the government's way of paying George back for a series of his paintings he donated years earlier. When funds for dialysis ran out, the Ghanaian Catholic clergy helped George, his wife and son, come to the United States on a medical visa. A painter and teacher, he now lives in Hartford while awaiting a kidney transplant. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Tell me more about this connections that you had in Ghana as a result of your art to be able to get the medical treatment for your kidney disease. When I did uh, the art pieces, it was in 2007, but I went back in Ghana as a refugee in 2011. So when I did that painting, it was not to get the money or something, no. I just wanted something just push me. Even I remember my mother, when after I came back and I told her that, oh, this is what I did, she said, you are crazy. I said, why? She said, no, if you don't want the money, you could have given it to your mother. <laughs> a president wants to give you some money and you refuse, you know, that's it. And uh, really, it was something that I was feeling to do as an artist. It was an inspiration. And there was nothing pushing me to get money out of it. But ultimately, it helped you. It helped me after four years. And then you came to the United States, and you have been here on a medical visa as a result of your condition. I want you to talk about the arrival to the United States, the challenges that an immigrant like you, with a family, with a wife and son, face here, the beauties, but also mm -hmm. the difficulties. I came really not uh, just on a medical visa, but as a political refugee. So when you come down here, it's two days before, they told me that we are sending you to Connecticut. So I took the plane with a doctor to check everything up to Hartford. So I was asking myself, what am I going to do? So it took me one week with to do all the social security papers, you know, the different things that I have to do. And now I was saying that, what am I going? Where am I going? So the only question I ask people, where is the cultural center? And they told me we don't have a cultural center, but we have a library. So I went to visit the library in downtown, and I found that it was like a cultural center. You can have everything that you want. I could have gone back to my readings or seeing other people, artists' works and things. So I was enjoying going there, and I started making friends there. 
So the library served as a meeting ground for you to start to understand this country and to create a sense of community. That's it. It was a big point for me. It was really a big point for me. And I was able to get in touch with people at the library who are living in the same area where I was living. So they started to direct me. Okay, we have meeting at that day. You can meet people. And it was like that. It's through those contacts I was able to be known. As you look back, Georges, to those early months, that early period of your arrival to the United States, what comes to your mind first? Being frightened, the welcoming of the people around you? My first problem was my kidney problem. So when I found out that I can have good, better treatment and everything, I was a little bit relaxed. And my family also did not come with me. They were still in Côte d'Ivoire. You know, so my other problem is how to bring them here because I was alone as a refugee in Ghana and I came here alone. When I found out it was a matter of money to do the papers, so I needed to get a job. But where can I get a job? As somebody who is sick, nobody wants to employ me. So I decided to do some artworks. I was doing some sketch. When people are eating in the park, I'm, I sketch them, sell it to $10, $20, and things like that. I start gathering money. And up to the time that somebody saw me and said, oh, you're an artist, I said, yeah. So, okay, we have a party. Can you come and do some sketch? And I went there two days after. I got $150. So it was a base for me to buy my paint, my supplies and everything to start doing paint, really painting. So when I did it two weeks after, somebody bought one of my paintings, $300. And I was able to get the money to file the document for my wife and my child. At that moment, I was relaxed and I knew that I can make something through my artwork, so I started working hard. What do you miss the most of your earlier life prior to the arrival to the United States? The hot sun of Africa, mm. the smell of clay. Because I was living uh, near the sea for more than 10 years, my house was near the sea. When I opened my door, I would walk on the, the sun of the sea. You know, so I mix those things. And French, we say la chaleur africaine, the, the warmth. The warmth of, you know, Africa. African people. People. I mix it a lot. In contrast, do you appreciate of Americans now that you didn't know before coming to the United States? Before coming to the United States, I was in Europe, in different countries in Europe, France, Italy, Germany, Great Britain, okay, Switzerland, I was there. In America, I was in Canada for two weeks mm -hmm. when I was, um, I was working at the university. So coming to America was not a big deal for me. I didn't mix many things. But what really I found is that still we have discriminations that exist. It's true that sometimes you dream about America, but when you come, the right is different. It's not America of Hollywood that you see in the films. I used to say to people, there are poor people in America like in Africa. We have ghetto places in America like in Africa. For me, there's no difference. It's just the scale of evolution. You have better roads, you have big buildings, but the human beings are the same. However, the racism is manifest here, and, yeah. and you have experienced it yourself. Sometimes by people, I'm fast and I'm straightforward. When I feel it, I tell you what I feel. So people are afraid sometimes, you know, but people leave it, you know, people leave it and people are frustrated because when I take my community, African community coming, some of them have PhD, PhD, doctors, but when they come to America, uh, we don't value it. So they have to do pity pity jobs, start everything. 
and some are not able to cope with the situation. And when you see your son being raised by you and your wife in the United States, do you imagine how different he would be if he was being raised in, in Ghana or in Ivory Coast? Uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, I was trying to give him the best school that I can afford. When I was in Cote d'Ivoire, my plan was to send him to Paris to continue his university there, like I did myself. I told him, you have the opportunity to be who you want to be. There's no limits. And I was able to have a good school for him, one of the magnet school in Hartford. So really, I told him that you can do the best that you want to be if you are there. It's true that Cote d'Ivoire, we are trying to do the same thing. So it's the continuity for, for us. But what I'm trying to do for him is not to forget where he's coming from. Because it's very important when you do education of a child so that he don't lose his culture. The culture is his identity, is his personality. I've seen people keeping their children here of 10, 20 years. At the end, they don't want to go back to Africa. They don't want to give back to their motherland. So I told them, how do you want Africa to have evolution? If the kids that we have here, who are have the same level as American, French people and everything, they don't go back to run our country back home. It's the only solution for us. Our forefathers, the politicians, they went to Europe, did their master, did everything, doctor, and they went back home to serve their country. And this is what I hope for my child. One day he can go even as an American to help. Finally, if you had the opportunity to change something in your life, what would that be? Perhaps I will not be engaged in politics. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Because? I wanted to help the community, you know. I wanted to really to help the community. I was having an NGO, I was doing that. It was a, a one step further when I entered in politics, really. I could have perhaps not go, but it's also good. It's also good because, like my wife used to say, you can't change your personality. And an outspoken person like me, who in face of situation, want to get solution, it was true politics that I could have helped more people. I say I've lived, I fulfilled my dream as an artist. I did exhibitions, I did monuments and things. I fulfilled my life as a teacher because many people become artists through me and they are making good out of it. I fulfilled my dream as a politician because I've voices some problems that get me in problems myself, <laughs> you know. So I think that I could not change something. My life is the life of an artist, and the artist is the voice of the voiceless and the community. George, thank you very much for coming. Brother. Thank you so much. For a longer version of the George story, visit wordsintransit at nepr.net. Nancy Cadigan is the intercultural liaison at the Hartford Public Library, where she works in a program to assist new immigrants adjust to living in Hartford. She's worked as an ESL teacher and was instrumental to the NEPR's Words in Transit project by helping to identify immigrants and refugees to interview for the project. Tell me about the program you're involved in at the Hartford Public Library. 
Well, at Hartford Public Library, we have many branches, and we have the downtown Central Library, which holds the program The American Place, which has been in existence since 2000. And in our program, we offer a range of services to new arrivals and to immigrants that includes ESL, citizenship classes. We also have a legal department that helps people with their citizenship applications. We have cross-cultural book groups, and we offer an online learning center for adult learning. So we even have a GED program for preparation, and we are also a GED testing site. What's interesting is that my, my boss, Homan Afisi, who is from Iran and has a very long history of working with folks from all over the world, made a decision that all of these classes and all of these services were great, but what she was noticing is that people were not really coming into the mainstream culture. It's human nature to stay in your own enclave and sometimes live many years in the city and really not get to know anyone outside your group. So her belief was to get people to come in and work with us in different ways in building relationships between people from the receiving community and people from the immigrant and refugee community in relationship building the volunteer program that we have and even in interacting with staff and feeling at home in the American place. Well, how do immigrants that have just arrived to this country identify the library as a gathering place, as a, as a center of gravity? Throughout history, libraries have really been at the hub of immigrants' lives, knowing that when they first arrive that they can find some assistance. Hartford Public Library happens to be right across the street from USCIS uh, Immigration Services. So we have a very good relationship. We have a lot of families come to us, cousins, relatives, friends. And so there's kind of a synergy that's created just from people in the city that utilize our services. And through that, the relationship building we are really including immigrants and refugees in a lot of decision-making that we're doing for programs, and that's exciting. And people literally come from all over the world. This is what I love so much about my job, because where can you sit somewhere and have the world really come right by your door? The newest arrivals that are coming to Hartford are from Iraq, Bhutan, uh, the Karen are coming from Burma. We are seeing some more Somalis coming in. And we have a huge Latino, Spanish-speaking population in the city of Hartford. So I would say Albanians, Bosnians, so many folks from all different groups. African nations now, we have folks coming in from Togo, from Ghana. And the latest arrivals will be from the Congo. People are moving, and they're moving to the United States. And even President Obama is really trying to open the door so that we have welcoming communities that are ready to serve and support them. One of the main challenges, I assume, Nancy, is the fact that many of these immigrants and newcomers don't speak the English language. And as you said, one of the programs that the library is involved in is, is in helping them get acquainted with the language. But how do you make the place feel comfortable when the very first thing that they see is in letters and sentences and words that look foreign to them. For folks who come who are not literate in their own language, it's even more of a challenge. And you know for the citizenship exam, folks need to have at least a third grade reading and writing level. So this is a long road for many folks. Text is not where people start. People really are starting with oral language and practicing and how are you and where are you from and starting with the basics. We serve primarily basic 
beginners. And then our job is to move them to other adult education programs in the city, Capital Region Education Council, Hartford Adult Learning Center, and ultimately, for many, the pathway to community college. So it's all the network on behalf of people who are at different stages of development. You were saying that it's quite a joy for you and an honor having literally the entire world in front of you. But the entire world, the world that you and I live in, is also very fragmented and balkanized. So I wonder, as the immigrants and newcomers arrive, if you see those divisions among them, and eventually those divisions, those separations, say the Iranians and, and the people from Latin America moving in, in directions that don't mix, that eventually bring them together. We keep that in mind, but we're mostly looking to bring people together at a different level so that what you're talking about could happen. People that are new to a country share that unfamiliarity and a certain openness because they're learning. And so they, in fact, might be more open to each other than if they were perhaps back in their own country. So I think that we're looking to bring folks in through relationship building with each other and with I would say the receiving community, and that's where the cultural navigating comes in, where we match someone from a family or an individual with someone from the receiving community, and they work with them for three months at the library and around the community, connecting them to these fragmented systems that you're speaking about. It might be the health system. It might be helping them with some of their immigration. It might be helping them with housing so that there's an advocacy base in the relationship. And we like to make people think that what really we're trying to do, and it's true, is create a partnership between the newcomer and the receiving community person because it's a two-way street. There's a lot to learn about each other. And we've seen some phenomenal stories. And I'm very proud to say that factionalizing off into one's own group, that doesn't come up at the library that much. Because I think by paying attention to what people need and being able to bring that to them and offer those services, we don't find really much uh, a conflict. We really do find people coming together. Maybe I sound very idealistic, but the truth is people want to thrive and move forward and have a quality of life that's better than where they came from, and that's their focus. Do you think that today in 2015, it is easier, is it more difficult to acculturate, assimilate oneself as an immigrant to the United States than it was, say, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe 100 years ago? How different do you think it would have been for this immigrants had they arrived in the 1960s or in the 1980s? What I see today is the internet has made the world kind of smaller. So folks may be coming with a more realistic viewpoint of what they're coming to. Certainly young people are extremely comfortable with music and, and many things of our culture already. So in some ways, it may be easier, perhaps though for younger people. What I find a lot, Ilan, is that people are coming because they want their children to be educated. And they often come and sacrifice their own professional lives from their country so that their children can have a step up or a foot up. And I often like to say to them, great, get your children settled and get them in school. But there's also, there are chances for you too. 
Well, as an immigrant myself from Mexico and as an absolute lover of libraries and one that has benefited enormously from volunteers who have opened their hearts, I applaud and celebrate the work that you and others at the Hartford Public Library have been doing. And I thank you very much for coming to the show. Thank you. To hear all the stories in the Words in Transit series and to hear a podcast of this program, visit us online at nepr.net. We are often unaware of the way all sorts of languages surround us. In news clips as we listen to a foreign diplomat, in movies that come from other countries, and as we cross paths with tourists. The sounds of those languages create a background symphony that, to a large extent, doesn't affect the way we live our lives. Perhaps the most impending way the beautiful sounds of those languages reach us on a constant basis is through our exposure to immigrants. This is a nation constantly reinvigorated by outsiders who arrive with a single unified dream, to have a good life and to make that goodness available to their children. That dream is experienced at multiple levels and in multiple tongues. The struggle immigrants undergo as they assimilate to the United States is to translate that dream into English. This doesn't mean giving up one's native tongue, but to make it a partner with another tongue that will make that immigrant communicate with everyone around. In spite of what nearsighted politicians clumsily say, immigrants are here to better us all, to make us more global, more cosmopolitan, more humane. America is stronger as a result. And so is the English language. Many other standard languages try in vain to police themselves to keep foreign terms from polluting them. We know how foolish that approach is. Cultures are richer as a result of the encounters they have with other cultures, and the same goes for languages. There is no such thing as purity in human interaction. No one can exist in isolation. I am an immigrant from Mexico. My first years here were as confusing as I assume they are for other new arrivals. I didn't fully understand English, so I felt disoriented. It took me time to learn to speak, to read, and to write in Walt Whitman's tongue. It took time to become an American. That process is first and foremost about translation, about making oneself comfortable in words that aren't one's own, at least not at first. Slowly, those words become parts of us as we mix them with our native tongue, creating a hodgepodge. Eventually, in our own way, with our own accent, we speak the language of this great country. And as immigrants, we transform that language too. A life in translation is a life lived in dialogue across time and place. It is a life that is as much about loss as it is about gain, for ourselves and for those that surround us. To hear all the stories in the Words in Transit series and to hear a podcast of this program, visit us online at nepr.net. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio, We've had technical support from Kathleen O'Keefe and Cara Foster. Our executive producer is John Fossey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening.